This is Pastor Clint Ribble, and you're listening to the Grace Point Church Podcast. For more information, please visit gracepoint.net. And today we celebrate what is called Advent Sunday. Advent Sunday is actually the first of the four Sundays of Advent. Now, this may be beyond what some of you are interested in, but these kind of things stick in my mind and I worry about them. Um, but I was trying to figure this out this morning and, and it, it, I'm just about to waste your time, but would you humor me? I do a lot for y'all. <laughs> Can you just give me this? Thanksgiving falls on the fourth Thursday of November. Advent actually begins on the fourth Sunday before Christmas. If you've noticed this connection between Thanksgiving Day and the beginning of Advent, um, you're right. There is a connection. But because of the way the calendar falls and because sometimes there are five Thursdays in November, we find ourselves on this day, beginning Advent, the Sunday after Thanksgiving, five out of seven years. When Thanksgiving falls on the 22nd or the 23rd, that means there's another Thursday and so we have to wait 10 days. But five out of seven years, we find ourselves here, Thanksgiving, and then a few days later, the beginning of Advent. In so doing, this intersection of days also provides us an interesting, and this is the most interesting thing to me. This fall of the calendar, five out of seven years, provides us with an interesting intersection of sentiments even more than days. We're all aware that Thanksgiving, it's self-titled, is obviously about Thanksgiving and about gratitude. We're also aware, and I mentioned it at the beginning of service, that Advent is a season built on another sentiment. Not an opposite sentiment, but a, a very different sentiment. Whereas Thanksgiving is about gratitude, Advent is about longing. If Advent means coming, the coming of Jesus to the earth, the coming of God, the breaking of God into the world, the establishment of the kingdom, then those of us that are on this side of that coming are longing and we're waiting. And so Advent has always been a season built on the sentiment of longing, expectation, and, and maybe even you, you could say dissatisfaction, discontent. Advent grew out of the heart of a group of people who knew that God had come to establish a kingdom of peace and yet they hung their harps on a willow tree and suffered much. Well, at this calendar-produced intersection of gratitude and discontent, and that's what I want you to see, Thanksgiving a few days ago and longing today, at this intersection of gratitude and discontent, we realize a bit of a paradox, an irony. And in that, generally, we recognize that a lot about spirituality is built on irony and paradox. For most of us, the ironic, the paradoxical, the incongruent provides us enough discomfort that we want to resolve it. That's what we do with discomfort. We resolve it immediately. But you learn following Jesus, you learn as a child of God that there are some paradoxes, there are some uncomfortable ironies and incongruities that are not easily resolved. 
And as a matter of fact, a lot of people in the therapeutic sciences have found out that to do really good soul work, sometimes you don't resolve the ill at ease at all. Sometimes you sit in it. Sometimes you sit square in the middle of that discontent. You sit square in the middle of that unresolved tension and you allow it to do a work in your soul. So this intersection that we find ourselves at today, this intersection of gratitude and discontent is a vital tension for, I think, a healthy spirituality. Let me say it another way. As children of God, we are called simultaneously, on one hand, to ever be aware of and thankful for all of the good that is. In all things, give thanks. We are called to recognize the beauty of God. We are called to recognize the beauty of the gift of God called life. And we are called to be thankful. Simultaneously, we are not only called to be thankful for what is, we are called to be dissatisfied with what is not. We are called to be thankful for what is good. We are called equivalently to be dissatisfied with what is bad. As my old grandpa used to say, and it's almost so simple that you can miss the profoundness of it, but he would say, Stan, life is the business of always being thankful for one thing in spite of another. Think about that. Life is the business of always being thankful for one thing in spite of the other. He would also say that if you notice, life is kind of like, life is kind of like railroad tracks. He said good and bad run on parallel tracks and most of the time they get there about the same time in your life. You ever notice that? And they're often inextricably linked. Well, as followers of Jesus, we are called to see and celebrate the gift of life. And at the same time, we are called to be cognizant of where that gift is being suppressed. And we are called to be thankful for everywhere where life is being abundant, life is being facilitated, and we are called at the same time to be angry. Yes, be angry. You remember, Jesus said, be angry and sin not. I don't know why for years I heard that as one command. All I heard was the end, sin not. But there was a an imperative before the sin not. What's the first imperative? Be angry. If you can see injustice, if you can see children of God harmed, if you can see a lack of mercy and love, if you can see people trampled underfoot and not be angry about that in itself is sinful. Jesus' first imperative was be angry, but then don't sin. Be angry and don't sin by inactivity. Be angry and don't sin by doing the wrong thing. Don't give evil back in return for evil. Don't throw fuel on the fire. But be angry and sin not by doing the right thing, by standing up in the right way. We are called to celebrate the gift of life and at the same time to stand against every place that that life is being suppressed. And we're called at this intersection of thankfulness and dissatisfaction. We are called by the same spirit to both of these sentiments. Gratitude and longing, thankfulness and discontent. And it's our very love for God's gift of life that causes us to celebrate it everywhere we see it. As Paul Tillich, the old theologian, said, the kingdom of God here and there, now and then, erupts through the brokenness of life like a blade of grass through the concrete. And where we see that 
verdant grass break through, the rigor, the brokenness of this world, we are to celebrate that. And when we see that same kingdom suppressed, that same love for life creates a holy discontentment in our heart that will not allow us to stand idly by as we watch the kingdom of God trampled beneath the feet of injustice. And so, here we are today, thankful for one thing in spite of another. Here we are today, every one of us in this room, I, I mentioned in the first service, one of the young women in our church um, that I pastored for 20 years, Janice Sims, in her early 40s, Janice and I, no one other a long time, grew up in the same denomination. Just a few months ago, her life got turned upside down, and I look back today at her hat on and the bald head and the rigors of chemotherapy and she's battling cancer with everything inside of her and I thought about last Sunday Steve we were outside and she was beneath that bald head and this battle with cancer she had a big smile on her face and I went went over to her and she said I am so thankful today that all three of my children are in church with me and there she stood Eddie battling cancer with all of her might good to see you by the way Candy, surrounded by three loving children. We stand here today, all of us, a mixed bag, don't we? I say uh, hi to Eddie and Candy. Eddie was on the first board that voted me into Nashville, Tennessee 20 years ago. Good Lord have mercy. Y'all didn't know what you were getting into. And here we are, a mixed bag. This life of ours, so much to be thankful for and simultaneously so much pain. And, and life doesn't even give us the decency at times of letting those be separate chapters. Generally, they're woven together into the same chapter of life, the same page, often the same sentence. The good and the bad intertwined into such a tangled snar that only the divine hand would ever eventually be able to untwine the mess. And even then, not immediately. For now, Jesus said, the wheat and the tares, they have a way of growing together. And that's a broader vision than just the apocalyptic vision of judgment and people. There's a principle of wheat and tares that extends beyond that specific context. The principle of wheat and tares, Jesus said, is that the good and the bad. You remember what Jesus, or rather, the Apostle Paul said, he said, all things work together. The good and the bad. You know how the good and the bad work? They don't work independent of one another. The good and the bad work how? Together. For Paul said God works all things. Some things even take some work on the part of God. And there's enough good and bad in that tangled snar that God even has to work at it. But eventually, all things work together for good. The wheat and the tares, they grow together. So much so, Jesus said, that you've got to be really careful when you're standing here somewhere between Thanksgiving and Advent, somewhere between gratitude and longing, somewhere between peacefulness and restlessness. Lillian, I thought it was funny. You said you couldn't even get Thanksgiving dinner cooked because he followed you all over the house. That's a good man. That's a good husband. Followed her all over the house. It hits you every now and then, doesn't it, Chris? Those beautiful kids and a loving wife. Lillian said it tongue-in-cheek. 
Couldn't even get Christmas dinner done or Thanksgiving dinner done because he was following me all over, hugging me, telling me how thankful. And yet at the same time, I know Chris Bosco, there's a restless dispassion, that, a discontent inside of you for all the good that we have and yet all of the bad that is had by others. Jesus said you have to be careful when you start wrestling with the bad. You know, we know what's bad. We know what's good. It's so obvious to us. He said, if you start trying to root all the bad out of your life, he said, be careful because what you'll find is above the surface, those things look independent of one another, but the wheat and the tares often share an entangled mesh of roots. Inextricably linked, he said, like vital organs and deadly tumors feeding off of the same flow of nutrients. And, and it's not so easy just to say, well, that's a tumor and that's an organ, get it out. Sometimes they're linked together so much so that they can't be separated now. But the hand of the divine surgeon comes and somehow he does a work. And the work isn't always the extraction that we want. Sometimes it's the grace to bear the tangled mix. For now... We are called on this Sunday of Advent in the wake of Thanksgiving. We are called to lift our hearts thankfully for what is right and good. And we are called to use that grateful stance as a force to push off of, to move against the darkness of the world, even rage against the darkness of the world, to be angry and live righteously. It's actually very appropriate that on this day of intersection and paradox we would celebrate the Eucharist and I say the Eucharist I've grown up my whole life calling it the Lord's Supper and communion and those phrases are still fine for me I think it's also lovely to recognize why much of the church for many years has called this the Eucharist it was a Greek word a very common Greek word that was used the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke all use it. The word is Eucharisteo. And you can hear Eucharist in Eucharisteo. Again, it's just an anglicized version of this Greek word. And I don't know why we always just anglicize a word instead of translating it into a completely different sounding word. But I think maybe the reason sometime we will literally, instead of translating a word into another sound we will literally transliterate. And the difference between translation and transliterate, to translate is word for word. To transliterate is when you take the letter of the old alphabet and transplant it or replace it with the letter from the new alphabet. And it keeps the word sounding the same. And I've wondered if we don't transliterate or anglicize some words because the thing itself is so holy that we just don't want to disturb the original sound and sense and taste of it. Eucharisteo sounds like a fancy word to us. It wasn't for them. It's the word that was used when Jesus took a piece of bread and he took a cup of wine and the Bible said he Eucharisteo. He gave thanks. So when you hear somebody say we're celebrating the Eucharist today, you hear them saying, we are celebrating the giving of thanks today. That's what it means. We are celebrating the giving of thanks. It's interesting to me that the Lord's Supper initially was a thanksgiving meal. 
And that meal preceded the most horrendous death that has ever been known, not simply because it happened to one man, but because in that man's body was the summation, the entailment, the encompassment of every unfair death that has ever existed, perhaps which is all of them. Every child that's ever succumbed to cystic fibrosis was lodged in that man's body. Every child who's ever succumbed to burns incurred from his parents' meth lab hung there on that tree. Every hungry child, every Holocaust victim. Amazingly, that moment, that breaking of a body, that pouring out of blood, that celebration, if you will, of life's gift, the Eucharist. Well, let me let the scripture tell the story for me. Look at Luke 22, and I want to read this scripture and then Paul's reflection on it from 1 Corinthians 11, then I want to tell you just a couple of things, and we're going to close. <clears throat> We've got, we got a fun event at the end of this service, and I think it'll kind of serve all of this very well. The Timothy's gift team is heading out today for their hope tour, their Christmas tour, and they're going to be ministering to thousands of incarcerated people and those who serve them as wardens and officers this week in countless services. They're going to come up and going to do a little bit of what they're going to do um, for all of those that they're serving this week. But before that, look at this. When the hour came, he took his place at the table. When the hour came, what hour? Well, it was the hour of his death. When the hour came, he took his place at the table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, listen to this, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Eagerness and suffering. An eagerness not to suffer, but an eagerness to eat this meal with them. How complex is this tangle of wheat and tares in his life? He would here say, I've eagerly desired to eat this meal with you before I suffer. But within moments, he would be wrestling in a garden, falling on his face, being in agony. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Suffering in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup. And what did he do with the cup? Well, within just a few hours, the Bible said he would be taking this same cup and throwing it at the feet of God, saying, if there's any way, please get this out of my life. Same word. If there be any way, let this cup not be mine. But before he threw the cup away, before he begged for the cup to not be his, the Bible said he lifted that cup and Eucharisteo. How do you give thanks? See, that's the complexity of all of this. Sometimes it's not just this admixture of the good things and the bad things. Sometimes the thing itself is intertwined in goodness and badness. And to throw it away would be... To, to throw it away would be the greatest gift you could give yourself because it's the worst thing that ever happened to you. And yet somehow to throw it away would be a curse. Because in, intuitively you know that somehow God's hand is on this. And it's the same thing. Joseph looked at his brothers and said, the thing that you thought would destroy me, not another thing, but that very thing God has used to 
heal me. The butcher knife and the scalpel were not different instruments. As a matter of fact, the butcher knife and the scalpel were the same instrument. The only difference was whose hand was on them. And I would rather there be a butcher knife in the hand of a surgeon who loved me than a scalpel in the hand of someone who hated me. And sometimes these events are so intertwined, Jerry, that the worst thing is the best thing. And he took a cup. Oh, yeah, that cup that he would throw away and say, please, please. And he gave thanks for it. And he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. And that's what we've been doing for 2,000 years. We've been dividing that cup, filling up in our body the sufferings of Jesus, which were incomplete, attending ourselves to the glory which he shares with us of the kingdom of God. Can you drink this cup, he had asked us earlier. And he gave thanks and said, divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I won't drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Then he took a loaf of bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it. Have you ever thought about those words together? When he gave thanks, he broke it. And when he broke it, it felt like it was attached to his central nervous system. And they didn't know, but there was a reason why when he broke it, he shivered. The good and the bad. He took a loaf, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he did the same thing with the cup after supper again. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Notice, I ended on verse 20, strategically. You ever want to learn a little bit more about the message? Go home and check out the verses after the ones that I put on the screen. Check out the verses before the ones I put on the screen. They often tell a whole lot about the story that I don't have time to get to. You know why I don't have time to get to it? Because the tension's not always explainable. This morning when I was dissecting this, I thought this cup that's poured out for you is the new covenant of my blood. That's a nice place to end. You know why? Because the next verse says that one of his best friends went out to betray him. Well, we don't want to deal with that now. But he did. You can't clean up life the way we clean up texts. Life doesn't clean up as easily as a sermon. New covenants in my blood that save a world often are intertwined with broken hearts and betrayers. And here we live in this tension. Look at 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three. 23. This is Paul's reflection on the matter. Paul, looking back, said, For I received from the Lord what I also handed to you. And that's what we do. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread. Paul didn't clean the story up the way I did. And when he had given thanks, Paul remembered that. The one thing I remember is he gave thanks and he broke it and said, This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also. And after supper, he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this, and as often as you do, do it in remembrance of me. Watch this. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim two things, the Lord's death and his coming. And if all you proclaim is the Lord's coming, you're not telling the whole story. And if all you proclaim is the Lord's death, you're not telling the whole story. Paul said when you took that little piece of bread and you took that cup of the fruit of the vine, you proclaim two things. 
One of them is horrifically bad. And one of them is our greatest hope. And here we live in the tension. And so I gathered my little nine-year-old up to me a few days ago. And I said, you know about Thanksgiving, Nina? And she knew a pretty good bit, third grader. I added the dates in and I told her, I said, well, you know, really officially the reason that we're not in school and the reason I'm not at work today is because a guy named Abraham Lincoln made this a federal holiday in 1863. That was a good thing to do. We all had a long vacation, or, you know, a little longer vacation this week, long weekend. And we got together with our family, got eating inertia and just ate and ate and ate and ate. Isn't it awful? I was sitting around at one point uh, Friday afternoon thinking, man, I wish I were hungry. And it was kind of depressing, just waiting to get hungry. I thought, maybe if I go out and work a little bit, I'll get hungry. Just surrounded by it. You know that feeling. I told her it was a federal holiday, Institute of Abraham Lincoln in 1863. I didn't explain to her that it happened at the peak of the Civil War. I didn't tell her what 65,000 young men's bodies look like on Gettysburg soil. The irony, Thanksgiving holiday instituted in the middle of our nation's greatest heartbreak. I told her that President Washington had really not formally but de facto instituted it back in 1789 and I said it even goes back further than that. I told her about the pilgrims in 1621 and I, I told her about they had celebrated their first harvest in the new world. I said it lasted three days. It was attended by 90 Native Americans and 53 pilgrims. And she has a good bit of Native American blood in her. and Probably not so much the pilgrims. My family were poor potato farmers who were starving in Scotland and Ireland and moved here in the 19th century. And with marginalized people interwove their life into the lives of Native Americans and others. She liked the story about Lincoln, nothing about the Civil War, nothing about the Revolutionary War. She liked the one about the pilgrims. I didn't tell her about the 150 years prior because the story of the conquistadors and comiendos, what happened to the Incas, the Aztecs, and the Mayans. I didn't tell her that south of the Rio Grande when we touched down there were 65 million indigenous people within 75 years. That number was reduced to 7 million. 65 million to 7 million. I didn't tell her about slave camps. I didn't. Because she's nine. She's not ready for the tension yet to that degree. I told her the colonization of the Americas from the story of the story from the side of God. I didn't tell her the story with one more letter added from the side of gold. I told her about religious freedom and the beauty of religious freedom. I didn't tell her about religious atrocity. But at some point you have to recognize that neither story tells the whole. But both stories must be told. And you sit somewhere between 
Thanksgiving and Advent. And this was the refrain of Israel. It was a, it was a refrain of deep gratitude for God's care, sustenance, and provision. It was a hope not only for Israel but for all the nations. It was 90 Native Americans with 53 pilgrims and there was peace. No forced conversion. Israel longed for a world made right, a Messiah, a mission, a king and his kingdom, benevolent where lions and lamb lie down together, where nations made peace and swords were beaten into plowshares. Two little stories, and I want the Timothy's gift team to begin heading this way. Thanksgiving and Advent. Gratitude and discontent. Gerda Wiseman was a prisoner in a Nazi death camp. In her memoir, she recalled an episode one spring where she and her fellow inmates stood at roll call for hours on end. In the beating down sun, they made them stand at roll call like dogs. She was a little girl. I thought about Ron Miller telling me when he was first visiting Timothy Kane and developing a heart to take the gospel and the story of belovedness into the incarcerated. He told me one day he was there in the chapel and he looked out and it was pouring down rain, cats and dogs just peltering down, those drops that almost hurt and sting when they hit you. And he said he watched as the men who had just been in the service were standing in the pouring rain and they stood there for 45 minutes as the rain just one of those Florida torrential downpours. Ron said he watched them beat down, beat down, beat down until they stood there 45 minutes and he asked the chaplain, he said, what's happening to those men? He said, oh, the officers are just messing with them. And as my old mentor, Brother Hardwick said, that line between that line between the incarcerated and those who hold them that line between them and us isn't nearly as thick as the bars would indicate sometimes some of the worst are out here and sometimes some of the best and most redeemed are in there I thought about that picture and I thought about the the tension that uh, over a hundred of you have gone on these Timothy gift tours and and you see the tension of the kingdom of God erupting like blades of grass, little dandelions up through the concrete of human brokenness. I thought about the tension of the, the picture that I saw the first time I went of not only the incarcerated, but a breaking of the rules and wardens and officers standing in line waiting to receive the Lord's Supper because it just seems right. There's a kingdom bigger than the kingdom of men. There's a world that operates by another rule. And I remember watching as they stood in line and an assistant warden held out his hands and one of our members put the piece of bread in his hand. And as he went he, to take the bread, he fumbled it. It fell to the ground. And there was such a stack of people that as he reached down, an inmate intuitively seeing the body of Christ on the ground, reached down, picked it up. And then in that tension of the moment, The warden and the inmate looked into one another's eyes. The inmate didn't know what to do. His eyes flirted away. And I watched the assistant warden as he cupped his hands again. 
and the incarcerated man pressed the body of Christ into his hand and I couldn't hear him but I saw his lips as he whispered the body of Christ for you warden and we live in this tension of grace and mercy and love and fallenness and brokenness and gratitude and pain Wiseman said we stood at roll call for hours on end nearly collapsing with hunger and fatigue but standing in that roll one by one we noticed in the corner of that bleak horrid gray place that the concrete had broken and a flower had poked its head through and one by one thousands of women's eyes fell upon that little flower and for hours on end filing back to the barracks thousands of women took great pains to avoid stepping on that little flower it was the only spot of beauty in an ugly and heinous world and we were thankful for it later in a radio interview she added when people asked me why did you go on how did you do it she said there's only one picture that comes to mind the moment was when once I stood at the window of the first camp I was in and as a little girl I asked myself with them dying around me if by some miraculous power Gerda one wish could be granted you what would it be and she said then with almost crystal clarity into my little mind the picture that came to me was a picture of home my father smoking his pipe my mother working at her needlepoint my brother and I doing our homework and I remember thinking there at that stark place oh my goodness it was just a boring evening at home not all the money in the world not to rule the world just a lonely evening at home I thought to myself I had known countless evenings like that and yet I knew that this picture would be if I could help it the driving force of my survival another Holocaust survival survivor Victor Frankl many of you have read after him he wrote that the prisoners there dreamed at night about bread cakes and warm baths the very things we take for granted every day interestingly Frankl said we began to appreciate the beauty as we never had before in one poignant piece he said if someone had have seen our faces if they could have seen our faces on the journey from Auschwitz to a Bavarian camp as we beheld the mountains of Salzburg with their summits glowing in the sunset if they could have only seen our faces through the little barred windows of our prison carriage they would have never believed that these were the faces of men who had given up all hope of life and liberty for despite that fact or maybe because of it on that long train to our death we were carried away by nature's beauty which we had missed for so long here we live in the tension it is good that five out of seven years we light candles of hope we open our hearts with longing a few days after Thanksgiving an intersection attention that is good for our soul thank you Lord for hearts full of gratitude thank you Lord for hearts that will never be satisfied with the world as it is we thank you Lord for this good day we pray you go with us now in Christ's name and God's people said amen, amen. God bless you go be good to one another